Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Acts chapter 17. Are you all right with going through Acts? Are you enjoying this? I am too. You know, the, the, the thing is, it's, it's, it's what, what we want to do, as it were, is to almost get in a time capsule and go back and watch. We want to go along with Paul and Silas and, and, and see them minister. We want, why? Because we want to do what they did. If we do what they did, we'll get what they got. Do you understand? If we'll preach the gospel they preached, if we'll minister this faithfully as they ministered, the same power, the same grace that was over the early church will be over us because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can have the full New Testament outpouring and revival, no question. So we're going through this with a microscope. We're saying, how'd they do this? What kind of, what was the real gospel? Not simply what is the cultural thing that's being passed around in America. We've seen the fruit of that. What was the real one? How did these real Christians, right, fresh out of the hands of Jesus, how did they function? What did they teach? How did they minister? So that we can do that in the 21st century. We may do it on a cell phone. They were not papyrus, but we'll do the same things. Amen? Hallelujah. Lord God, open the word and open our hearts to the word. So that we can do exactly that. That we can be disciples. Full New Testament disciples. Full of the Holy Spirit. Full of life. Lord, we do not uh, grow despairing. We do not look fearfully. But we say that God who's within us is greater than he that's in the world. May this word feed us. Teach us, Lord. Let our Apostle Paul uh, mentor us today. And grace us, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I will um, quickly read through from verse 15 down to the end of the chapter, uh, where Paul has um, been run out of Berea. He just goes run out of one town after another. Do you notice this? But would you also notice he is effective? Please notice that. He may be there a few weeks or a couple of months, uh, gets, gets a... Gets a Apparently a handful or a room full of disciples. And then that town now has within it a seed growing, which grows into a powerful church. So he's not failing. He is not failing. Uh, he got run out of Thessalonica. Thessalonica exploded and took the gospel over the entire region. He's, then, he, then he fled to Berea. He's getting run out of Berea. And, and it says the brethren escorted him as far as the sea. So it's, I got on Google Earth, and I'm looking. There's footpaths and everything through the woods. And they took him 16 miles to, I think, the beach and probably put him on the first boat out anywhere. Just get him out on the water where he can't be retrieved. And uh, so they, they got him out, uh, and it's about a three- to four-day sail with good winds down to Athens. A couple of the Berean brothers, lovely brothers, escorted him. Uh, take care of him, watch over him. Say, take him down to Athens, find a place for him to stay, get him settled. And then before they go home, uh, he says, now you tell Timothy and Silas to come as soon as they can. Because they remained. They're still going to be pastoring and working. They're not as visible. They're not as recognizable. They can kind of still sneak around town and, and do the ministry they need to do. So they're back there. He's all by himself now in the city of Athens. You all know Athens? This is the center of ancient philosophy. This is that city with that great Parthenon. Uh, This is is the heart of Greek culture. And Paul's walking around the city. That's a dangerous moment, huh? Yeah, Yeah, let's see what happens. Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. And so, so he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Uh, literally, those who were walking or sitting beside him. 
and also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers and were conversing with him. And some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange or foreign deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. What was he preaching? Yes, those notice that. And he took him and brought him to the they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, "May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange or foreign things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean." Now all the Athenians and the foreigners visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, this, this is this council, I'll describe it later, and said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. I may come back to that. That is a life-changing verse. That is a powerful verse. And he determined their appointed times, meaning the, uh, the, the, he's talking about ethnos, groups of people. God has created every group of people and has appointed their times to exist and has also appointed the frontiers, the outer boundaries of where they live, is what he goes on to say. That they would seek God, if perhaps, and what a horrible word, they might grope for him. The word means to, 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 to reach out and feel something. A baby reaching out and touching your face. You know, and grabbing your nose and trying to figure out who you are. That kind of reaching out and touching. Uh, he describes um, people trying to reach out and, and discover God. And find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. Even as some of your own poets have said. For we are also his children. That's a quote. Being then the children of God. We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. And therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, would you say times of ignorance? God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. What should they do? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, ridicule, apparently with some kind of gestures. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined, joined him as very weak. Some clung to him. They clung to him. They wicked out with him among whom was Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. The culture around us is changing. Would you agree? What used to be Jerusalem, a society whose beliefs and morals were rooted in the Bible, is becoming Athens, a society which is ignorant of God and the Bible and looks for help Elsewhere, I'm suggesting that the United States, I'm suggesting our state of Washington, I'm suggesting uh, Pierce County and King County, I'm, I'm suggesting we're watching a culture shift from what I would call Jerusalem, a Bible-based culture, to Athens, a philosophical, uh, atheistically-based culture. You, you recognize that shift? It's important that we understand this change and recognize where it has occurred. Because God speaks to Jerusalem one way, but to Athens another. When he confronts Jerusalem, he speaks very directly. Because these are people who know his word and at some point in their history promised to serve him. When it comes to spiritual matters, they're not ignorant. When they sin, it's rebellion. But he speaks differently to Athens. It's not filled with people who know God and have made a covenant with him, though they also do sinful things. 
Their deeds are not done in direct rebellion to God. They don't know him. Today, as we watch Paul preach in Athens, he models a very important lesson for us. He shows us how to reach people who are ignorant of spiritual realities and who live in a world of self-made philosophies. As he passed through that city, he became deeply grieved at the demonic bondage which held those people in its grip. He knew they were deceived and that... And that knowledge stirred him to action. Luke uses a word meaning to spur or to prick, a sharp point spiking you like that. It says as he walked through the cities, he, he looked up at their statues and his spirit was grieved within him, pricked within him, troubled within him. Uh, it, yes, it can mean anger, but it, based on the result, it wasn't. By the way, anyone want to venture a guess? Because I, I know the answer, so this is cool. <laughs> How many statues, and I'm not talking about uh, idols that were in people's homes or private gardens or any of that kind of stuff. Public statues of gods and idols were in the city of Athens at the time of Paul. 30,000. Pliny, the writer Pliny tells us there were 30,000 in one, <laughs> one city. 30,000 statues and idols in that one city. That's bizarre. And so when Paul says, I perceive you're more religious than others, <laughs> like, yeah, you know. So he's walking along. Can you imagine this, this wonderful rabbi, you know? He's, he's, he's Jewish, he's bow-legged, and he's bald. Hallelujah. <laughs> That's the way you ought to look. And, and uh, here's this guy walking through going, Oh, for heaven's sakes. Oh, it's gross. And some of those idols I shall not describe. But they're outrageous. Okay. So here's, here's this rabbi walking through that city. It says that he was pricked in his spirit. And he, he became very upset. Yet notice how he responded. He didn't march into the marketplace and angrily rant at the crowds about their sin. He began to look for people to lead to Christ because he was confident that even in that deeply confused place, there would be individuals whom God had been drawing to himself and who were ready to hear the truth. There would be people who were fed up. There would be people that the Holy Spirit had been working on, preparing, drawing, giving. They are frustrated too. They're longing for more. God is at work all over the earth doing that. Say amen to that, please. Verse 18, some of the philosophers listening to Paul grew frustrated. They wanted further clarification of the things he was preaching, so they apparently stepped away from the discussion that was being carried on and asked each other, what does this, and this is what they really said, what does this peddler of someone else's ideas wish to say? Others replied, he appears to be a spokesman for foreign gods because they'd heard him talking about someone named Jesus whom he said had been resurrected from the dead. Taking Paul by the hand, these philosophers led him to the marketplace to stand before a council of six annually elected judges who had been chosen by the nobles of the city to serve as guardians of the established customs. Did you see this? This is the council of the Areopagus. The, this group in Athens history used to govern the whole city. As time has gone on now, that what they're there for is to evaluate religion and, 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 and morals and philosophy. But this is, the, this is their wise men. These are their sages uh, of the city. And they take him and they, and they want him to be uh, interviewed before that group. When it assembled as a murder court, it convened on the rocky hill of the Areopagus, named after Ares, the Greek god of war. Near the, and it gets translated in Latin, uh, uh, they, they, it's called Mars Hill, um, but Areopagus was the Greek, and this was in Greece, near the shrine of the Furies. Uh, because of its meeting place, it had come to be called the Council of Areopagus. In earlier times, the Council of 
This council of elders had governed the city, but when Paul stood before it, its authority had declined over the years until they, their only responsibility was investigating questions concerning religion and morals. They asked Paul, can we know what this new teaching is which is being spoken by you? For you're bringing into our ears some foreign things. Therefore, we strongly desire to know what these things mean. At this point, Luke inserts a brief observation so we'll understand the prevailing attitude of the people he was, Paul was addressing. He says, all the Athenians, including foreigners living in the city, spent their free time either reporting or listening to something newer. I mean, it's actually a comparative. Something newer. They're always, apparently, this, uh, a term which probably means they researched and reported on new stuff. So they're entertaining themselves. This was done as a form of entertainment, not sincere search for truth. This council of elders generally met in the royal portico, one of the colonnaded buildings lining the marketplace. Once they had gathered their, their questions had, and their questions had been asked, Paul stood in their midst and said to them, men of Athens, I have observed how much more fervently you worship the gods than those who live in other cities. Because as I was walking through your streets, looking up at the objects you worship, I even found an altar on which the words had been inscribed to an unknown God. This God you worship without knowing who he is, this is the one whom I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all the things that are in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in handmade temples and shrines, nor does he need to be served in any way by our human hands. For he lacks nothing, but instead he is the one who gives to all of us life and breath and all things. Just, just for a moment, do you notice how he approaches Athenians? Just think in your mind, how does he approach the synagogue? Very differently. How does he approach Athens? Very differently. He's, he's showing us something. He's showing us something. Verse 26, I think. And furthermore, from out of one man, he made every nation of men, every people group, to dwell on all the face of the earth. From how many men? One. Look right and left for a moment. That person sitting next to you, if you go back far enough in time, has the same grandparents you do. Do you understand what that means? Yeah, I, I, I got, I'm, I'm, I'm going back to this one, I think. But this is, this, is, this is really important. We all go back to the same set of parents. All right. And furthermore, out of one man, he made every nation of men every, and every people group to dwell on all the face of the earth, placing boundaries on their predetermined seasons of existence, you know, empires rise and fall, and on the frontiers of their dwelling places. They extend this far, their outer boundaries of the land they occupy. And... God's purpose in doing this was so that those who were seeking after him might reach out and touch him and find him because the truth is he is not and never has been. That's in the language. He is not and never has been far from each one of us. For in him we live and are moved, it's in the passive, set in, meaning set in motion, and continue to exist as indeed some of the poets among you have said, for we are also his offspring. In order to show these Athenians that some of their own ancestors had said similar things, Paul quoted from two different Greek poets. This is important. Follow this. His first quote is formed, found in a poem by Epimenides of Crete. He wrote concerning Zeus. They fashioned a tomb for thee, O holy and high one. The Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. Do you recognize that quote? Paul quotes that in Titus. <laughs> what is an idle belly? I don't want to know. But, but thou art not dead. Thou livest and abidest forever. He's talking about Zeus. Isn't that icky? For in thee we live and move and have our being. Whoa. When Paul said that, he was quoting Epimenides. I just want you to see how he's approaching them. That's the, we sing that song, don't we? Come on. In him we live and move. We, I mean, what a great phrase. 
he's quoting someone who was talking about Zeus. His second quote repeats exactly the words written by a poet named Eratus of Soli, a native of Cilicia, Paul's own province. In the first half of the fifth line in a poem about astronomy entitled, entitled Phenomena, he wrote, for we are also his offspring. Again, referring to Zeus rather than the God of the Bible. But by showing them that he was familiar with their literature, Paul was trying to find some common truth upon which they could all agree. And he was also proving he was an educated man. He was talking to them about things they already knew and already heard. He's reaching to common understanding. You see it? Now, he's not saying Zeus is it. He says, I'm telling you about the God you don't know. But he's taking and saying the qualities that you've been assigning here belong here. He's reaching to them on terms they understand. That's important to see. All right. Having shown the council that some of their own philosophers had described God as a divine person far too big to live in the temples or idols that humans might fashion for them. Paul continued, therefore being offspring... We should not think that gold or silver or stone, an engraved object produced by human skill and design, is like that which is divine. But having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now announces to all men everywhere to repent. Because after this, this season during which they may repent, he has set up a day in which he must righteously judge all the inhabited earth by a man whom he has designated, meaning he literally says set a boundary around, furnishing proof that this man is the one he's chosen as judge by raising him up from the dead. Paul was using the term times of ignorance to describe those many centuries during which the Athenian people had become so confused about spiritual realities that they had built an altar to an unknown God. He tells them God mercifully overlooked this season. But by saying that, he doesn't mean God considered them morally innocent. But rather, he's explaining why God withheld his wrath. They should not interpret the fact that God continued to care for them as evidence that he approved of their idols. But rather as evidence of his patient love. He held back the judgment they deserved in order to give them time to find him. Do you hear, Paul? Do you hear the loving outreach that's going on? He's confronting them with truth, but he's not, he's not ranting at them. He's not railing on them. He's saying, God is withheld. He loves you. He wants you. He's been feeding you and caring for you and watching over you. The very breath in your lungs is from him, and he will judge you. This God is a righteous God. He will not tolerate this, this idol worship forever, but he's waiting for you. He's postponed his wrath, waiting for you. Uh, for hundreds of years, Athenians had, quote, now I'm going to quote Romans 1.23, exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And during those years, God indeed turned them over to the misery which naturally results from sin. But he had chosen to restrain his wrath and had postponed that day when they would stand before his judgment seat to give an account for every word and deed. Apparently, the council continued meeting after Paul left. Paul, it says Paul went out from their midst. He, they, didn't, they didn't dismiss. They kept meeting and he walked out. People are starting to ridicule. The, the sermon is over. The, 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 the meaningful time is over. Paul Walks out. Now picture this. Paul walks out of this gathered meeting. They may have stayed to discuss how to respond to what he, they had just heard. But amazingly, when Paul walked out of that meeting, he did not go alone. A number of people who had been listening to him were deeply touched by what he said and walked out with him and met with him in the days that followed. Some came to faith in Christ, and Luke mentions two. One was a man named Dionysius who was an actual member of the Areopagus Council. How many, how many judges were on that council? One of the Areopagus judges gets up and goes out with him. And a woman of note, some prominent woman named Damaris. And he notes that there were others who believed as well. So Paul's sermon, though delivered under very difficult circumstances, still bore eternal fruit. Now let's go back. I want you to see that. Do you know, some of you will know, this sermon of Paul's has been heavily criticized. 
There are, there are Bible teachers who will turn to this and say, this was Paul's weak moment. He was compromising. He was trying to reach them philosophically. And, and when he gets to Corinth, and there is, you go to 1 Corinthians, he'll say that. He, he says, I, I, I've determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. He should have gone in there and railed on him. He should have gone in there quoting Bible at him and told him Jesus Christ crucified. I think he would have gotten to it. He got cut off, by the way. But they said, he, he, he compromised, see, and, and, they, and they assumed that this sermon was a failure. I'm going to prove to you today it was not a failure. I got more to say. But I want you to see something. Failure, he's sitting there among people who haven't a clue about the Bible. And he starts with, with, with a common understanding. He begins to talk about, uh, from their own philosophers, quoting them, showing he's in touch, man. The guy knows what they believe. He's an educated, uh, erudite man. And he says, and he begins to quote and say, even your, own, even your own teachers say these things. But I'm telling you, it's the God you don't know. You have been making these idols for all of this. And I'm saying there's one above all things. And you don't know him, but he loves you. And he's withheld his wrath all these years, all these centuries, longing for you to find him. And now's the time. And there's people sitting in that council who are so sick of these disgusting idols, who are, who've, who've tried these gods and these offerings and these, this whole thing, and they're, they're filled to hear. They're, they're smart people, and they don't know where to turn. They don't know what the answer is, and they listen to him. And they, he even says, a resurrected man. And one of the judges gets up and says, wait for me, and goes out with him. It says they clung to him. That's what, what Luke says. They clung to him. And they went out with him. Isn't that powerful? My, my goodness. All right. Failure, my foot. And I got more to say. Paul's strategy. The inner turmoil in Paul quickly turned to compassion. See, he goes through the city and he's just grieved. The demonic, the vulgar. The, what, how can people this smart be this deep in, in stupidity? and bondage but that compassion drove him to action he couldn't remain silent so he targeted two very different groups of people luke says he was quote reasoning in the synagogue with the jews and the god-fearing gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present undoubtedly in the synagogue the jerusalem as it were he preached something very similar to the sermon he preached in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. He must have referred to Israel's history, mentioning people like Abraham, Samuel, Saul, David, and even John the Baptist. And then he would have announced that Jesus is the Messiah and proved that the prophets had promised his coming. And ultimately, he would have proclaimed the cross and the resurrection and called them to repent and believe. But he approached the people in the marketplace very differently. He moved about looking for opportunities to speak to those who walk, walked or sat beside him. The language Luke uses is, is he, it was those who came beside him. So those, maybe he's walking through the market, maybe he's standing there buying, you know, some fruit or something. Somebody's buying it with him. He says, hey, nice day. You know, he, he, he's, he's, he sits down, somebody sits with him, maybe goes sits beside somebody, begins to chat. Paul is moving his way through the agora, the marketplace. He was watching for those individuals whom God had prepared, notice this, to hear what he would say. When he preached there, he, he indeed called for repentance and proclaimed the resurrection, but he reached that conclusion differently than he would have in the synagogue. He started with things they understood and then led them toward the truth. Reaching Athens. What is the right way to reach a deceived culture? Before we look at how Paul did this, let's notice what he did not do. He did not prophetically confront them by quoting from the Bible. He didn't say, therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of you and the prophets may not come upon you. They didn't know the prophets. People, you don't approach Athens by scolding them like they're, uh, like they're Jerusalem. 
And, and I say this because we got a model in our American mindset because we were Jerusalem, because we were a people who knew the Bible, that, that you can get out there with a sandwich board or signs or, you know, go at them. You can, you can, you hammer them and tell them. There's even whole groups who believe that the, because of this quote, that the word of God does not return to it void. And so that it, whoever it is, just hit them with the word of God. And, and you know, it's kind of like, and, and quote scripture at them, and it won't return void, it'll do its work in them. Yeah, right. You're just, in some cases, you're just splatting people with your religion, and they don't have a clue what you're doing to them. It's disrespectful. It's just disrespectful. I want you to see Paul's treating these people respectfully. He is appealing. He is having a real discussion, but he's, he's treating them respectfully and he's, and he's full of the love of God for them. And he's calling them. He's telling, he's telling them the truth, but notice the way he does it. Number two, he did not abandon them. He didn't say, I'm leaving this demon-infested place. I am moving on. In other words, he didn't move to the woods, buy freeze-dried food, an assault rifle, and watch angry websites. I'm not, I'm not, I'm really joking. I've got people that have been in this church that are in jail today. Listen to me. Don't you do that junk. This isn't about protecting your hide. This is not about protecting your hide. You're his. You belong to Jesus. And you and I do not have permission to abandon ship. To cover yourself and protect yourself. And what are you going to do? Shoot somebody who wants your food? For heaven's sakes. Get off those angry websites. Get off, in some cases, get off that conservative st stuff you listen to. I'm conservative, okay? I'm not, this isn't a philosophical statement that way. But what happens is you get mean. And you get angry. And you spend your whole time talking bad about politicians and people as though they were the ones who would fix this. You know what the Lord says to me? You're the one I'm asking to fix this. Meaning you. And me. He's talking to us. We're the ones who know Jesus Christ. We're the ones who have the answer. We're the ones who have the power. You can't sit there and look at some poor pathetic politicians. What do they know? They don't know anything. You have the answer. So you, don't, you don't get freeze-dried food and move to the woods and buy a rifle. You, you do what Paul did. What did Paul do when he, when he was grieved and prov prov provoked in his spirit looking at this mess? What did you do? Started walking through looking for souls. And I'm going to show you why. This is not some desperation move. This is not the last thing you can do you know, before the ship goes down. All right, number three. He did not agitate for political change. He didn't say, let's take a vote. We need new, need new political leaders. That city was the cradle of democracy. Did they know how to vote? They invented it. But what, did they, what they needed was not a vote. They needed changed hearts. And when hearts changed, votes would change. Did you follow that? You change a society by changing the people in it. The reason we don't have good leaders is we don't have good people. We don't have people who know the Bible. We don't have people established in righteousness. We don't have people with self-discipline. We are getting who we are. That's the problem. Number four, ridicule them. He didn't. He didn't say, seriously, you worship little statues? How can people who claim to be so smart be so stupid? He didn't insult them. What Paul did, undoubtedly, was to pray and then go out into public places looking for people whom God had prepared to hear what he would say. His goal was to plant a seed in that city which would grow. And as more and more people came to Christ, the city would change. And it worked. Though Luke doesn't tell us, church history does. Listen to, this is a quote from G. Campbell Morgan. A century ago, great preacher, one of my favorites. But listen to what he says. In the next century, in other words, the century following Paul, the church at Athens gave to the Christian church and these are church fathers, Publius, Quadratus, Aristides, Athenagoras, and, and others, bishops and martyrs. And in the third century, the church was peaceable and pure. 
In the fourth century, the Christian schools of Athens gave to the church Basil and Gregory. Did Paul fail? Luke doesn't tell us what happened, and we don't have, no, we don't have a letter to the Athenians. No saying he didn't write one, just we don't have it. Did he fail? He did not fail. He planted the church of Jesus Christ in that city, and it grew. Yeah. And tell that to, and the, church, the city of Athens has schools for Christian training. I want you to see that. This was not a failure. This was, he, he had every effect. And then listen to Morgan. He goes on, and he's talking about how they responded. Remember, some of them mocked him, and some of them said, we'll hear from you later. Men cannot wholly mock the Christian fact out of existence. Men cannot entirely postpone. The apostle may pass his work being done, but he always leaves behind him Dionysius, remember the Areopagus, and Damaris, that woman of prominence. Christ always wins a vantage ground. People all over planet Earth are struggling. You are too. You have good things in your life and you also probably have areas that are tragic and miserable. Aren't, don't you? Are you getting older? Do you notice? I mean, what used to work doesn't. Uh, used to be, you can sense this. Do you have, uh, you have, have questions of why am I here? Even as the end approaches, you struggle. Is there some, what's life about? Every human being on planet Earth is going through that. In every, every season of history. This is the human condition. Nobody's cruising. Everybody is longing for help, looking for meaning. Everybody's struggling with their own mortality. Everybody is. That's why they can't stamp religion out. They've tried big time. They've butchered us by the thousands. And they can't stop it because they can't change the human condition. You have the answer. The God you preach is not one more philosophy. The God you preach is not some screwball. It's the real one. And when people encounter him and he comes into their lives, they know it. They know they got it. So when Paul goes into a city as messed up as Athens, if he can get a few, he has started the fire. And it will continue to burn. Do you live in Jerusalem or Athens? In a Christian culture or a post-Christian culture? Or maybe even a pre-Christian culture? Do you live among people who believe in the God of the Bible but may not choose to obey him? Or do you live among people who really know nothing about God or the Bible, at least nothing accurate? And I say that because some people, if you ask them, would hate Jesus Christ. But you ask them about who it is they hate, and, and the person they describe is nothing, nothing of the true one. They've been raised to believe nothing but lies all of their life. It's just disgusting what they've been taught. You wouldn't like him either if that was Jesus. So do they know him? No, they don't. They just know the name. And some horrible caricature about whom people claim him to be. In actual practice, some of us may be living in several cultures. At school or at work, we're in Athens. But at home, at church, or with that certain family members, we're in Jerusalem. Does this make sense? The lesson we learn from Paul is this. If we talk to people from Athens as if they were from Jerusalem, they won't understand us. They'll just get angry. And likewise, if we, if we treat Jerusalem like Athens, we may be so non-confrontational, people will not even realize they've been called to repentance. In the synagogue, Paul spoke one way. He preached from the word and called for decision. In the marketplace, he introduced them to their creator and explained that God had mercifully overlooked the fact that they worshipped other gods and that he loved them and was calling them to repent and come to him before the day came when they would face his judgment. Paul had only begun to tell the Areopagus Council about Jesus when he was interrupted. But amazingly, some of the most intellectually capable and sophisticated people in the most learned city on earth walked out beside him and listened to the gospel 
and believed. You cannot decide who it is who's going to come to Christ. I know it says not many mighty, not many wise, but there's some of them do. Some of them do. Uh, we've, had, we've had people, professors around here who were, were, were adamant atheists. Adamant atheists who just absolutely hostile come to Christ before they die. And have visions. <laughs> and the Lord, the Lord draw them powerfully. You do not know because everybody's dealing with those human issues. As we observe Paul in the city of Athens, he shows us how to present Christ to our Athens. That growing number of people among whom we live who don't know God. Are we living among a growing number of people who don't know God? Yes, we do. Here's what we do. Number one, prayer. Now, prayer isn't mentioned here. I admit that. But we know from his letters, Paul relied heavily on prayer. He asked people to pray with him for doors to be opened for the gospel and to pray for him to have the courage to speak boldly. Whether we're called to reach a place, a group, a family, a school, or a business, we need to pray first until we sense God has prepared the way before us and is telling us it's time to act. Look, once if we want things to move, you pray. You begin to, to pray down things. I was in South Africa in, in uh, November, and uh, I was talking with, uh, we, have, we had the leaders from uh, eight Southern African nations or nine, and I was talking with a pastor from Botswana, and uh, he's a really good church planter. I mean, he can just go anywhere and plant a church. He's, just, he's a radical guy like that. But he had planted a church in a city in Botswana, and uh, he'd been there for three years now in this particular city. In the course of it, he somehow had, had acquired a building. It's a three-story thing. He had 1,500 seats on first floor, 1,500 seats on the second floor, and his offices and classrooms and things on the top floor. He, after three years, he now has three services on the weekends. Uh, how many people will you figure that is? <laughs> He's just slamming. And you know what he said to me? He said, we, have, he said, we Africans have finally discovered, we have learned, no, he said, we Africans have finally learned from the Koreans the power of prayer. I mean, he was, you, you know what he's saying? We're getting it. We get that you pray and intercede and break the powers of the demonic. We get what you do here now. And he's just raking people in by the, by the thousands. Can we do that in America? You pray down the strongholds. You pray till the place is soft. You pray till the devil's grip has been loose, till the blindness is gone. See, we've got to stop being secular. Stop thinking secular. It's not psychology. It's not philosophy. It's not this rationalization. Get out of that. There is a spiritual world. And when you and I recognize that and begin to use the authority God has given us in prayer... We soften the beach. We break up the opposition. We tear down the walls. And then we begin to see a harvest. At our, our, our youth council the other day, for the uh, parents' council, uh, one of the moms made a wonderful comment. She said, she said uh, you know, we've started that fasting thing. And she said, my, my daughter and her friends are fasting. They're, they're part of our youth. And uh, I think it was twice a week, you know, and really, really going for it. And they said, she's trying to get, they're trying to get me to fast, and I'm not, I'm not ready to do that. And, uh, but you, I said, you have no idea how that thrills me. I've told you, all kinds of stuff's happening, all kinds of growth and salvations. And, and we're taking some, some, of the, some of the toughest, most, uh, most wayward kids in the city are coming to Christ. And when you tell me that my youth get it, that my, my youth are interceding and fasting, there's no stopping this. See, once we got people praying like that, there's no stopping it. There's no stopping it. I mean, yes. By the way, you and I need to be fasting for Easter. Yeah, I, I've been, it's on my, on my heart to say something about that another time. But we need to begin fasting for souls for Easter. Amen? For the move of God. Uh, just keep that in the, in the back of your mind. So I'm telling you, the man prayed. He, he, this was very much part of what's going on. Number two, go out among the people. Paul didn't 
sit and wait for people to come to him. He went out among the people, trusting God to guide him. You can just see him watching. He, he some, just let the divine appointments happen, but get out there. Ex, number three, expect divine appointments. What was his divine appointment there in Athens? He gets invited. Now picture this. He's, he's, he's out in the marketplace talking and some gets, encounters some philosophers and they're, they're going at it and talking and, and all. And they say, you got to come and make a presentation to the Areopagus. So he goes in front of, and he got this whole gathering of philosophers and leaders of the city. And Paul's asked to do what? Preach his message. Do you call that a divine appointment? Have you ever had those moments where you go, how did I get here? Yeah, how did I get here? Uh, I got all kinds come to mind. All right, I'm just telling you, those will happen. In fact, fact, effective evangelism always depends on miracles. Accidental encounters with just the right person, unexpected invitations. Paul's invitation to speak at the Areopagus Council is a perfect example of this. Number four, look for areas of agreement and speak using terms they understand. Look for common ground. Start where they, need, where they need to start. Many people now, are, are when they're leading people to the Lord, they're starting in Genesis, not the Gospel of John. They're starting with creation and walking them up to the Gospel so that those understandings are there, not just hitting them hard with, with, with knowledge you have, but beginning where they are. Paul says, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. And I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. Number five, expect opposition, especially when God starts working. A few believed, others ridiculed. You will take ridicule. You will get pressure. Count on it. If you win souls, you're in trouble. Hallelujah. Number six, watch for those whose those God has prepared to be a bridge into that community. People God has prepared. People who've been responding. Only God knows people's hearts. You and I cannot tell by looking at the outside or evaluating their past behavior. Sometimes people are hostile at first, but in time become radical disciples. Jesus told us to watch how people respond, not rely on our own judgment. Now look at this quote. It's in Luke 10. Whatever house you enter... This is what Jesus was teaching his own disciples as he sent them out. He says, here's how I want you to evaluate things. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. Shalom. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. This is not some friendly greeting. Jesus says, when you go into a city, go into a house, he said, I want you to I want you to just, I want you to pray a blessing on that. Holy Spirit, may the shalom of God come over this place. And he said, and then observe whether the anointing stays. Observe. Does the peace of God and the sweetness of the Lord fill that house? If it does, he's your man. If it doesn't, leave. Isn't that interesting? They're becoming discerning. What are they watching for? It isn't just tell everybody, do everybody. Everybody isn't ready. You're looking for, and there are bridge people. There are people who've been prepared to be a bridge into that family, a bridge into that business, a bridge into that school. There are people prepared by God to be the bridge for the gospel to come in. And sometimes they're the most antagonistic, difficult, ornery people you ever met in your life. And once they get on board with God, they're difficult, ornery, and, 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 and they're just as stubborn for Jesus as they were against him. Only a few weeks later, when Paul was in Corinth, the Lord Jesus spoke to him in a vision at night and said, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you. Now look at this, for I have many people in this city. This is the arrival of the gospel. That city has not prayed the sinner's prayer. But God says, I got a lot of people here. Isn't that interesting? Do something to your brains. That God has people he loves and is drawing and is at work in even before the gospel of Jesus Christ has arrived in that city. God has been preparing hearts. You've got to see this. God isn't sitting. You didn't arrive with you. 
You're not the, Luis Palau, great evangelist, says, you'll never speak to a person about Christ where God has not been there first. There's no such person on planet earth who has not had encounters with God, who's not had those moments like, are you there? Who's this? Who's, Who's already been wakened? Who's already been loved? Who's already been protected? Who's already wondered, who is that? You'll never speak to a person on planet earth where God has not been there first. Number seven, disciple those who respond. Paul met with them daily. We know that. That was his method. He mentions it elsewhere. He would, he would, with, with, with Damaris and with, with Dionysius and whoever wonderful walked out of that meeting, he would have met with them and taught them deeply in the gospel, prepared them and prayed for them the rest of his life. Expect the seed to grow. You're not just rescuing a few. You're sowing seeds. You've got to see this last point. You're sowing seeds that will multiply. You go into a a school. You go into a business. You go into a city. What's happening when when I tell you that young people are coming to Christ, that isn't just good for them. Now they'll go to heaven. But when they become, as disciples of Christ, they will lead others. Who will lead others? And then with the passing of time, that city changes. Paul sowed something in Athens that changed Athens. We can do the same. We are doing the same. Conclusion. Cultures change one person at a time. You can't legislate morality, though I admit good laws strengthen those who want to obey. God must write his laws on the hearts of individuals. You can't scold people into better behavior. You must introduce them to Jesus. Then with the passing of time, as more and more people become disciples of Jesus Christ, a powerful, transformative influence is released into that community. As years pass, one generation gives way to another. The culture of Athens is changed into a culture that knows God and his word. This approach requires faith, courage, and patience. And admittedly, it is not as personal, it may not be as personally satisfying as political activism or scolding or moving to a remote hideout. But it is God's way, and it actually works. Listen to us close with this, but this is get a hold of what Jesus is saying. And he presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air, that means all of these broken people, all of these lost Gentiles, people who don't know God, come and nest in its branches. All we have to do is cast the seed into the garden. The power of God will superintend over it. People will tell people, will tell people. Generations will pass. People will read their their children to Christ. This is our assignment. Every one of us is to sow seeds in our garden. Seeds in the areas of influence where we are. You don't have to, you don't have to, you don't scold everybody. You don't try to change. You, You look for the people. And you sow the seeds and then you disciple them. What'll happen? That seed just keeps growing. It just keeps growing. This is the way of God's kingdom. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.